Good morning. Welcome to Simply Remarkable, created by Remarkable, a Speakers Bureau. And I'm your host today, Sue Falcone, founder and CEO of Remarkable. Now, why did we create the show? We did this for you. We wanted you to see our talent that we represent at Remarkable and get to know them personally, just like we do. Also, you can see the, how remarkable they are, and you never know. You might have an event coming up, or you know someone that does, and you found the perfect match. Also, you're going to get to see some tips of how remarkable they are that you can pick up for you and your organizations and your companies as well. So welcome to Simply Remarkable today, and we thank you for joining us. Now, I'm kind of excited because guess what? 17 days till spring. I'm ready for that. And it's also today is National Employee Appreciation Day. And we certainly appreciate all of our staff and employees here at Remarkable. Give them a shout out. And we want to honor that today. So we have a lot to be thankful for and to celebrate. Now, our live chat is open. We welcome you for any questions or comments. And let us know where you're coming from today. We're from our headquarters here in North Carolina, and you just let us know where you're from. Now, our remarkable guest today is the amazing Ryan Campbell. Now, he's a top international, sought-after, inspirational and motivational keynote speaker, author, and world record-breaking pilot. We're going to hear more about that. He's known as the Pink Cadillac Guy and is from Australia, now living in Nashville, Tennessee. And he is helping others discover the unexpected, the unconventional road to a culture of joy and resilience. He has a courageous journey to share with the world and it involves a pink Cadillac. And I can't wait to hear the story. How about you? Welcome, Ryan. We are so glad that you're hey, here Steph. with us today. It's great to be here. That's quite the introduction. I need to take you uh, with me to all the events for the intro work. That's. Uh... I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there, Ryan. <laughs> what a way to start a Friday. It's great to be here. And where are you coming to us from? I never know sometimes. So although I try and convince people that I'm from West Texas, I am from Australia and I do live in Nashville, Tennessee. So I am uh, coming to you from Nashville. Oh, great. Great. One of my favorite cities. And we're probably going to get a little weather uh, from Texas tonight. It looks like it's moving our way. So you never know. You never know. But anyway, let's get started because guess what? This 30 minutes goes by like a flash. And we want to make sure that we get in all the things that I'm sure people out there and our audience would love to hear about you. Now, first of all, when did you discover your first passion, which is flying and flight? And how did that happen? Yeah, it was um, a long time ago now. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was six and it was the very first time my family uh, had ever been overseas. So we hopped on an airplane in Sydney in Australia. We took off uh, and headed to an island in the Pacific called Vanuatu. And this was just prior to September 11. So we're actually invited by the cabin crew to walk up the aisle of the airplane 
uh, and walk through the cockpit door and be in the cockpit whilst we were in cruise on the way to uh, this island in the Pacific. And that was it. It was it was all the emotions and sounds and and feelings of that day that just hooked me. It was incredible. It was meeting the pilots and having them turn around and talk to us and care. And it was the buttons and the switches and flying through the clouds. And it was just everything. It just captured the mind of a, a six-year-old kid. And from that day on, I was just hooked. It was all about aviation. Uh, but really, I had no idea at that point where aviation would take me and the fact that it would honestly provide the very best experiences in my life, but it would also provide the very worst. Um, but I was six when I caught the bug. Wow. That is so cool. You kind of knew where you were going at that point. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, when you got there and started your career plan at a young age and it involved raising the money and the fees and everything so that you became the youngest pilot ever to fly solo around the world at age 19. I can't even imagine that. But what was your life like once you had made that record and done all those things up to that point? What was your life like then? Yeah, well, I, I suppose life was kind of completely governed by aviation from kind of 14 years old onward. So I, I had an after-school job. Uh, I flew an airplane solo for the very first time on my own uh, on the day that I turned 15. And this was the photo that ended up in the newspaper, which was pretty wild. So I flew an airplane uh, solo at 15. At 16, I could take passengers. At 17, I had a private pilot's license. Uh, life was was pretty good. But then I had this wild idea. And that idea was to take a single engine airplane uh, and fly it 24,000 miles around the world, which I would 10 out of 10 not recommend. Uh, but I had this wild idea as a normal Aussie kid and, and it just changed our lives for the, for the better. It was an incredible, uh, positive, life-changing adventure. But there was two years of planning and training and preparing and fundraising. We fundraised a quarter of a million dollars as a normal Aussie family on a laptop computer. We built a team and went to meetings and traveled around the world in search of an aeroplane. And we ended up renting this single engine Cirrus as it's uh, called. And we modified the aeroplane so it could fly long distances. And we set off from uh, an airport just south of Sydney in Australia and headed eastbound. And, and I was solo in the aeroplane, even though I say we a lot, uh, it was a team, uh, a team adventure, but I was on alone in the aeroplane for 70 days and we flew eastbound around the world the shortest leg was 20 minutes the longest leg was 15 hours and it really was just incredibly life-changing I mean I saw the whole world disappear beneath the wings of this tiny little airplane it also held all the emotions that a good adventure should from boredom to sheer terror and from pleasure to immense regret like this was such a bad idea but at the same time it was a good idea and, and that was kind of the fun uh, the highs and the lows of adventure but we did uh, after 70 days, make it home and life was incredible. We celebrated, uh, we partied, we uh, held a Guinness World Record certificate, but at that point it didn't really matter. Uh, what mattered was the impact we had had as an incredible team and in doing something that had never been done before. And life was really good. Like I can't explain what was happening to a normal Aussie kid. I 
was able to meet the Royals and shake the hand of a man who walked on the moon and be named somehow one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. And I still struggled to make my bed in the morning, but somehow I made that list. Uh, we even published a book, which was Born to Fly. So life was just good. So it was just, I had been shown how good life could be. And even though the trip was full of adversity and challenges, uh, as any good adventure uh, should be, it was a rewarding type of adversity. And it led to a 19-year-old kid being back home post-adventure, kind of ready to take on the world. And uh, I was just eager to go out and do something else and, and find my new chapter in life post around the world flight that was not necessarily bigger or better, but provided me the same satisfaction and, and positive feeling that the round the world flight did. That is amazing. And I have read your book, Born to Fly, and it's an amazing journey. I'm sitting there saying, golly, all the things you encountered, and but you made it through and all like this. So, you know, I was just inspired to say, golly, you know, the, the, the value of that was great, was great. But then what happened? To change yeah. those plans because guess what? I knew you wanted to be a famous pilot. I knew you wanted to be commercial pilot from the book. You know, you had these plans all in place. You had the fame. You had everything going for you. What yeah, I mean, since I was six years old, I wanted to be an airline pilot. And that's post round the world flight. There was lots of opportunity to speak and and go and share the story. And, and I chose deliberately to continue flying. And, and that was my passion. And that was my life. It wasn't about money. It was about satisfaction and, and the feeling that I had from flying. And uh, two years after the end of the round the world flight, I was at work and it was just a normal day. My job was to fly a vintage airplane built in the 1930s um, up and down the coast of Australia. And what we, we, what we would do was take one passenger at a time and we'd fly up the beach have a look at the waves and the buildings and the sand. And if they wanted, we'd fly uh, a couple of loops and we'd do some aerobatics to see the world upside down if they were feeling adventurous. And that was my job. It was an incredible aeroplane. It was big and yellow and beautiful. And uh, it was old. Um, to start the aeroplane, you actually grabbed the propeller and flicked it with your hand. So it was a vintage biplane, but it was just a special job. And this day, uh, just after Christmas in 2015, I jumped in this aeroplane. I'd met the passenger, incredibly nice fellow, um, had a little bit of aviation experience himself. And uh, we strapped him into the aeroplane. I started the aeroplane, said goodbye to his family, hopped in uh, the cockpit, strapped in, taxi to the end of the runway, turned around, lined up with what was quite a short grass airstrip. And I pushed the throttle forward just like any other day. And we lifted up off the runway and we started to climb away. And, and as the end of that runway disappeared, Beneath the nose of the aircraft, we were at a low level and we lost power. Uh, we had some form of engine failure, partial engine failure. And despite doing what I could, assessing the conditions and the trees and where we could go and, and, and kind of what we had uh, at our disposal, despite doing everything I could, it wasn't enough. And what resulted seconds later was a really, really horrific plane crash. And... It was horrific to the point that I was found cut from the wreckage and I was taken to the hospital uh, as the only survivor. And it's an incredibly tough story to tell. And I struggle every time that I deliver a keynote, but 
it's easy to tell a good story. It's easy to tell an adventure story. It's not easy to tell an adversity story. And as I worked out throughout my life and the opportunity to compare those two moments, the lessons and the benefits and the growth comes from the adversity story. And, and hence why now I work through that struggle to share it. And the struggle was five breaks in my back, shattered face, uh, shattered, almost removed right ankle, uh, taken to hospital, operated on immediately, woke up after a stint in the ICU uh, with no feeling and no movement below my waist. And I was diagnosed by the doctors as a complete paraplegic. I uh, suffered a spinal cord injury and I was the lucky one in all of this. Uh, it was as if the the very thing that gave me my identity. I mean, I had a book that was called Born to Fly and Life was great. Regardless of making all the, the best decisions that I could, life had thrown this situation at us. And what resulted was that identity really had been taken away. Um, and it was just, it was tough. And it started the toughest chapter in the whole wide world. It was just brutal. So during this time, I'm sure it not only affected all your physical, but also the mental part of all this as well. So I can see where you connect now with the mental health um, part of our world today, which needs to be connected to uh, so that, you you know, we can see the, the whole process there. So how then did you get from Australia to the United States and when did the pink Cadillac come into all play? Yeah, so first off, mental health, number one passion and priority of my life now. Uh, experiencing a high and experiencing a low was very interesting. The low is what allowed me to have what I would call an outward perspective, um, a newfound kind of view on the world and a realization of how many people are struggling each and every day. And it doesn't matter whether that adversity is uh, a crippling illness, a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, or whether it's a really long line at Starbucks, as silly as that sounds, adversity is adversity. It's not a competition. Uh, and it is a byproduct of breathing. So every single one of us, if you are breathing today on this wonderful Friday, have adversity in their lives. There's storms that we have to tackle today and there is future turbulence guaranteed, whether you like it or not. So mental health and understanding adversity and taking responsibility for resilience, understanding what it is, the role it plays in our life, the way it can help us, um, our ability to endure, our ability to bounce back, our ability to be better because of the things that we have to endure. That is my passion and that's why I do what I do and it's a passion because I struggled and although learning to walk again and this was six months in hospital a year and a half in rehabilitation a journey back to thankfully walking albeit very broken and crooked and slow but walking and even flying now uh, that journey allowed me to understand that it was not a physical journey but learning to walk was actually a mental journey life is one and lost above the shoulders and as you say having the mental health conversation should not just be um, boxed into May, into Mental Health Month. It should be a conversation that we have each and every day. Uh, there are too many people losing the battle and we need to do something, even though we're shining a light on it pretty well as a society now more than ever, we need to continue to do it and we need to brighten that light. It was a struggle for me. Uh, six months in rehabilitation, they built me a wheelchair. They put me in a position where, you know, we had no idea where I was going to end up from a recovery point of view, spinal cord injury recovery is a rehabilitation assisted lottery. Thankfully, 
my numbers started to come out. We started to see a twitch of a, uh, a toe, a flicker of a muscle. And ultimately over time, I was able to stand up for the very first time uh, just for a few seconds. I was able to stand for 30 seconds and a minute. Uh, I was able to go to a walking frame. I was able to start shuffling. And after quite some time, get to crutches and then crutches ultimately to walking unassisted. There are lots of things still wrong with me. Um, I have no feeling in, in my feet, the backs of my legs, where I sit. I've got no calf muscles, no glute muscles, no control in my feet, barely any push in my feet, um, no bladder and bowels. All of that stuff is, is gone for life. But I was given enough recovery to be able to walk and fly and, and be here as a keynote speaker, which is incredibly lucky and, and better than most. So that opportunity to get better that led to walking, that led to flying, actually also led me uh, to learning to fly helicopters. Now, the reason was that I managed to get back to flying aeroplanes, but I could only really fly a few percent of the aeroplanes that are out there. Why? Because of the type of brakes. So this aircraft that allowed me to get back into the sky, this is Doug, uh, a Piper Cub, had brakes activated by my heels as opposed to my toes, which I could no longer push forward and control. So the dream of flying an airliner went out the window, but I was flying this airplane for fun. Now, this moment that you're seeing moving the pedals in a helicopter was a big moment for me because helicopters don't have brakes. Therefore, I was able to activate the pedals with my damaged feet. That led to an opportunity to retrain as a commercial helicopter pilot and ultimately find a new avenue and a fresh uh, kind of growth-based avenue in aviation that I thought at the point of the accident that I had lost um, for the rest of my life. And I mean, I was 19 when I flew around the world and 21 when I was in the accident. So it all happened at a very young age. The flying of the helicopters was pretty incredible. I remember flying the chopper one day at this airport. I taxied in to these hangars that you can see on the left. I landed the helicopter. I hopped out, walked inside. I then uh, headed to the shops with my parents who were visiting me at the time. And I said to my dad, my foot hurts, which was odd because I can't feel my feet. And I took my shoe off and found my shoe full of blood and went, this is not very good. So I put my shoe back on and went to the hospital. What had happened, I had a rock in my shoe and I didn't know. And I'd flown all day in a helicopter with vibrating uh, floorboards on my feet. And this rock had worked its way all through the back of my heel and caused a lot of damage. I couldn't feel it. It didn't hurt. Um, but it looked terrible and we had to care for it. So I went back into hospital. I went into a burns unit for a week. I was back in the wheelchair for two months. And it was at this point that I made this realization that I needed to look after my body. I was a uh, damaged man and, and would be for the rest of my life. So it was making that realization, but also understanding that even though I didn't really want to be a keynote speaker, what I had to share this opportunity to compare in this mental health conversation was far more important than my unwillingness to want to share it. So I sold everything in my life except that aeroplane. I put Doug in a box, shipped him to America, uh, and I moved here to Tennessee. And, and that's how I started this journey of um, building a speaking business in the States. We talk about this Cadillac. It has become my whole life um, and the topic of our keynotes and this kind of message that's really blowing up. I was here in the US talking about adversity and resilience and, you know, this idea of kind of understanding adversity, the role it plays in our, in our lives, the unavoidable nature, but also resilience being the combatant to that adversity, the need to build a foundation of both in, in, in which we can uh, achieve and overcome on. And 
the truth was, even though I gave these keynotes and I was doing okay and by society standards, I was successful and my recovery had been amazing and I was flying again and all of this very happy, lovey-dovey, positive story, I was struggling. I was still struggling mentally. I felt like I had a thousand piece puzzle and I'd built 999 uh, pieces and I had it all right, but there was one piece missing. And that one piece caused a lot of stress and strain in my life because every night I went to bed, I'd put my head on the pillow with all these questions and I felt like they were questions that I couldn't answer no matter where I looked. And I didn't know whether I needed more money or a better job or a, a different job or whether I needed to be near my family more, I have more friends. And like, I looked everywhere for the answers. Little did I know that the answer to that question was actually parked in my driveway. Uh, when I first moved to the US, uh, I was struggling a little bit. I hopped in my truck and I drove west from Nashville to Memphis in Tennessee. And I went to Elvis's house. I went to Graceland and I did the typical tourist tour where you have the iPad around your neck and you put the headphones on and you walk around Graceland, you go to the jungle room and you go and you look at pool and, and the, the racquetball courts and you see all these places where Elvis kind of existed and lived his life. And I always kind of thought Elvis was cool. Uh, but when we finished the tour, they took us down to the main building in the bus. And like, like every good US attraction, the only way that you could get out to your vehicle and, and move on in, in your day was to go through uh, the gift shop. So I went through the gift shop and I saw something in that shop that I just had to have. And this was, it was this. <laughs> it's a little worse for wear because it spends a lot of time on the road. But I bought this model pink Cadillac and it was $30. And I remember taking this home to my housemate at the time. And I walked through the door and he was immediately concerned. And he said, why in the world is a 20 something year old man buying a pink toy car? And I said, well, I've always wanted a pink Cadillac. I don't know why. I said, I'd always wanted a pink Cadillac. I said, one day I'm gonna own the real thing. So I sat up beside our television as a reminder. And I thought I'd buy it when I was old and gray and you know, gray hair and kind of had plenty of money. But nine months later, I'm scrolling Facebook and I saw something for sale. And I drove to Jackson, Georgia, seven hours south of Nashville, and I bought this. Uh, this is the worst financial decision I have ever made in my life, right? This is a 1960, two and a half ton, 19 foot long pink Cadillac uh, that we named Flo. And this car was unnecessary. It was extravagant. I turned up to buy the car. The gentleman selling it to me, his name was Hot Rod Walt. He was a rockabilly singer. He said, where's your trailer? And I said, oh, I don't have a trailer. And he said, why not? I said, well, it's a car. I said, I'm just going to drive it home, right? And he was horrified. <laughs> and I worked out soon after why he was horrified because the drive back to Nashville, which should have been seven hours, took two days. The car overheated every hour and a half. We sat on the side of a lot of roads to get this car home. We got it back to Nashville. It went straight to the shop. It was the craziest journey just to get Flo back to her new home. But regardless of that journey, I was left smiling like a kid. So somehow I've ended up uh, deciding to head to the US. Uh, I moved to Tennessee. All of a sudden, I own this 1960 pink Cadillac. And um, little did I know that it would be that car and its connection to joy and how it made me and others feel that would pull me out of the mental health uh, slump. Wow. What a story. What a story. <laughs> what a story. And I read recently that you bought it the week that they were celebrating 
the passing of Aretha Franklin, who certainly made the hit song that I dearly love, the <laughs> Cadillac. So it was all tied into that, all tied into that. So the message then for our viewers and our audience here today of the pink Cadillac is what you bring to audiences worldwide because that's a symbol to you of getting others to say, what's your pink Cadillac, right? Because it got yeah. you there. So tell us a little bit before we close here today, what is the challenge to that you give to your audience to find their pink Cadillac? Yeah, so, I mean, as a keynote speaker that already talked about adversity and resilience and this importance of kind of prioritizing tool building and, and getting ourselves to a position where we can always overcome the unavoidable challenges of life, um, I was delivering that message and struggling in my own way at exactly the same time. And I remember hopping in this pink Cadillac one day and driving it down the road, and I just bought it. It was the most awkward experience. People would honk and they would wave and they would stop beside you in their car and take photos while they're driving. It was so unsafe. And I would stop at a gas station and get stuck for 30 minutes talking to people and people would want to sit in it and on it. And like we found this car on three separate dating profiles of girls we don't know, online dating profiles. So this car was everywhere. And I started to realize that this vehicle created some incredible reactions in the community. But this one particular day when I was just, just existing, driving the car down to get some milk or something at the gas station, I saw an old man and he was looking at me. And more importantly, he was looking at the car. I was looking at Flo and he was smiling like a kid and he had this big grin on his face. And I had this, again, this outward perspective moment of realization. That I went, Wait a second. This guy is experiencing turbulence in his life. Now, I don't know whether it's the long Starbucks line or all the way through to losing a partner or a cancer-based you know, diagnosis. It didn't matter. He was experiencing his own turbulence in his life. When he looked at me and when he looked, more importantly, at that car, and he smiled like a kid for that moment in time, he simply forgot about that turbulence and it provided a break for him. It provided a little bit of an opportunity to forget it, uh, to have some relief and some rest. And he stepped back and it started this kind of thing where I started to prioritize all the stuff that I love that made me smile, my hobbies, interests, and simple pleasures in my life. So when I struggled, I started to go out and do fun things, go for a walk, um, buy some stuff at the, the grocery store and make a cool meal or go fishing or ride my bike or, or drive flow. And it made me feel so much better. It was my opportunity to step back in order to show up better. So then we started to ask the question at the end of the keynotes, what's your pink Cadillac? What's the one thing you do that makes you smile like a kid? And the answers just blew me away, but more so the emotions that came out as a result of answering that question blew me away. These stories of adversity within the audience that would have remained unknown blew me away. And we ended up receiving thousands uh, of answers from asking this question to so many people. And the answers were broken down into hobbies, interests, and simple pleasures. And we now talk about the benefits of doing the things that make us smile like a kid out. Yeah, the, the, the little things that we consider excessive or the things that we prioritize only when life is good. We now talk about the need to understand the benefits that they provide to our mental health because the understanding leads to permission and then the permission to do it leads to uh, prioritization and prioritization leads to positive change. So we talk about uh, the need to understand in order 
to provide permission because we need to take that, man, I should be mowing the lawns feeling on a Saturday morning and turn that into permission to go and play nine uh, holes of, of golf or to go fishing or to take the kids to the beach. Prioritizing the things that we normally believe or have believed are excessive will benefit our mental health in ways that we could never imagine. One of the greatest resilience building tools I've ever discovered. And I went through a lot from a high and a low, but it was the pink car that changed the game for me. So we now ask the question, uh, we challenge people to prioritize those, to implement, to maintain, um, to uh, share and support. We encourage people to really dive into their hobbies, interests and simple pleasures and understand the benefits from a mental health and a performance and a culture point of view. And look, Sue, there's no way in the world that I thought I'd be living on the other side of the planet, driving a pink Cadillac, talking about a pink Cadillac, given everything that happened in my life prior. But the power is there, the conversation is there, and it is just, it's, it's just taking me for a ride at this point. Um, it's very exciting. Well, I appreciate you sending me my own pink Cadillac. I understand you will have a new book coming out called The Pink Cadillac, right? Absolutely. We can't wait for that. We can't wait. Everyone, you heard it here. It's coming out. So it will be out there. And we just appreciate hearing your struggle, but hearing the joy that you now have. It just comes through. It is amazing. <laughs> and I love it. And I thank you for sharing that today. But we have one closing question for you today. What are you going to do today to be remarkable? I'm going to drive my pink Cadillac. And today I won't drive my actual pink Cadillac because it's raining and I, I don't want to take it outside in the rain. But I have a little aeroplane, Doug, and today I'm going to go out and take it for a quick fly and we're going to wash it and get it all ready to go for a fly tomorrow down to Alabama to, to spend some time with friends. So uh, I am going to prioritize you know, no doubt I'm going to work hard and keep working on everything that we have to do in the business, but I'm going to prioritize my pink Cadillac today because it makes us resilient and that makes us remarkable. And you have changed my life and my perspective. And I want to thank you for that because yeah, well, we've got some things going always, right? <laughs> and we, we have to keep being true to ourselves and have that positive mental outlook that we can share with others. So thank you so much for coming today. We never know who's here and what comments we'll get, but it's, it's amazing. And I challenge our audience here today. What are you going to do today to be remarkable? You've heard some choices that you can make. We want you to know, and we would love to hear either in the chat or send us a comment online because we'd love to hear what is it? What you got from today even. So make sure you do that now. Also, we hope that you will join us back here next Friday, March 10th, when we will have Lieutenant Colonel Oakland McCullough. Now he is a leadership keynote speaker worldwide. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel decorated from the U.S. Army. And he has a, he's a best-selling author of his new book, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be. So you won't want to miss this. You won't want to miss this. Also, we would love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel because this is where all of our episodes are so that you can go back and look at them at any time. 
in case you want to remember what Ryan told us today and shared with us, you have it right there for you. We'd love to, uh, and also all of our other episodes there. And you can make sure that you don't miss anything because they're all out there and we love doing this so that it brings personally to you knowing exactly who Ryan and others are. And that's the whole message of this. And again, thank you, Ryan, for coming today and sharing your life and your courageous journey. And we're going to have a great National Employee Appreciation Day because we want to honor all those that do the hard work for us, like our broadcaster behind here, our director, Lisa, who's made this happen all today, and others. So we wish you have a remarkable weekend. And we will see you next Friday.